0: All right, turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 17. Revelation 17. Much of the book of Revelation that we have seen so far has been taken up with the judgments that fell on Jerusalem because of their unfaithfulness and their rejection of Christ. Well, that judgment is coming to a climax in the section of the book that we're in now. In chapter 17, 17, is possibly the most graphic description of that unfaithfulness. It should fill us with horror and disgust at Jerusalem's sin. And it should drive us to faithfulness and holiness and gratitude for what God has done for us. Now, normally, I like to just kind of jump right into the text as we get started, but today I'm going to explain a few things first in order to set the table. There's a number of characters or groups in this text, and if we read it without an idea of who they are, it'll be confusing. I imagine that John's first readers probably read and reread and reread as they kind of figured things out. But for this morning, I'm going to explain who they are, and then we'll read, and hopefully that will help us understand what we're reading a little bit better. Then we'll go back and talk about the message of the text. Okay? So, the cast of characters here that we have in chapter 17 first of all, the seven angels. These seven angels are the ones that we saw last time. They have the bold judgments from God, which they are pouring out on the land. Okay, that's the seven angels. Then we have the great prostitute. And this one is the focus of the chapter. So we have to make sure we understand that. The great prostitute is the city of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem kind of stands for Israel as a whole. She is described also in this chapter as a woman sitting on a beast and as Babylon the Great, but it's referring to Jerusalem. Now, remember where John gets his imagery, primarily from the Old Testament. So the image of a prostitute is used exclusively in the Old Testament for a nation that abandons the covenant and goes after false gods. And with only two exceptions in the entire Old Testament, every time it talks about a prostitute, it's talking about Israel. So this is entirely consistent with what the Old Testament has said. Israel is called a whore, a harlot, a prostitute, repeatedly in the Old Testament. And the prophets are very graphic in what they say about Israel and Israel's sin. And by the way, though it may make us uncomfortable, this is language that God intends the church to hear. Now, sometimes we're worried about children being present, but in scripture, whenever there's instructions about worship and children, it's always that the children are present in the worship of the church and hearing the word. And preachers are instructed to give special attention to the reading of the word, right? So we don't skip parts of it. And they're to preach the whole counsel of God, all of the scripture. So it is appropriate for us. Actually, I would even go so far as to say it's Necessary for us as the church to hear this. Now, the imagery of prostitution is appropriate because God is Israel's husband and she's abandoning him and running around with other gods. Spiritual unfaithfulness and prostitution. Now, a number of the prophets in the Old Testament say things like this. Let me just give you a few examples. Isaiah speaks specifically of Jerusalem in this way. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 21. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. It's spiritual unfaithfulness. Jeremiah says this about Israel. If a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would not that land be greatly polluted? You have played the whore with many lovers and would you return to me, declares the Lord. Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see where have you not been ravished? By the waysides you have sat awaiting lovers like an Arab in the wilderness. You have polluted the land with your vile whoredom. Therefore the showers have been withheld and the spring rain has not come, yet you have the forehead of a whore, you refuse to be ashamed. Or listen to the words of Hosea as he describes Israel's unfaithfulness, plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. Now, remember that Revelation is Jesus' legal testimony against Jerusalem, against Israel. So when Jesus was ministering in Israel, did he say anything like this? Well, here's a few examples of what Jesus said in his day about Israel. When the scribes and the Pharisees told Jesus they wanted to see a sign from him, Jesus said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Note what Jesus is saying. This generation, Jesus says, is adulterous. The same generation is the one that's in view in Revelation. Biblically, a generation is 40 years. We're not quite 40 years later from when Jesus said this. And he says the same thing again in Matthew 16. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. In Mark 8, 38, he says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. So Jesus clearly charges the current generation of Israel with adultery, with unfaithfulness to God. Not only that, but John's imagery of the prostitute here in Revelation 17 is specifically intended to connect in our minds with Israel. The prostitute is dressed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, and has a golden cup all of that is modeled after Israel's high priest. I won't bother giving you all the references, but just remember the high priest represents the nation. And here, Jerusalem, the prostitute, represents the whole nation of Israel. Even those who are outside the city of Jerusalem itself. It's all of those who align themselves with the beast and not with Christ. And if you're still struggling to connect the prostitute to Jerusalem, Think about the big picture of Revelation. In one sense, you could tell the story of the book of Revelation as a tale of two women. The prostitute who's judged and rejected and the bride who's married to the lamb. It's Israel and the church. It's the old covenant people and the new covenant people. Well, next on our list of the cast of characters here is the waters. The prostitute is sitting on the waters, and the angel explains that the waters are people and multitudes and nations and languages. In other words, since the woman is Jerusalem, it's showing that Jerusalem has influence on all the peoples of the empire. Now, at this time, history tells us that the Jews made up between seven and ten percent of the population of the Roman Empire. They were dispersed all over the empire and had influence all over every part of it. And you can see their influence even in the New Testament when they convinced the Roman governor, Pilate, to crucify Jesus, even when he wasn't guilty according to Roman law, or when they convinced the Roman rulers in other places to persecute the Christians in the empire. Let me give you just one example of how this influence works. This is speaking of Paul before he became Paul, so he was still Saul. This is Acts chapter nine. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, that's the high priest in Jerusalem, and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, that's in Syria, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So the influence of the high priest in Jerusalem was enough to get Saul permission to go into another country and to take people prisoner there and bring them back to Jerusalem for trial. So the Syrian officials, as well as the Jewish synagogue rulers would allow him to do that. And note that it is specifically Jerusalem and the high priesthood that is designated here as the spearhead of the persecution against the church. The next list on our list of characters here is the kings of the earth. Who are the kings of the earth? Well, first we need to clarify the translation. Like so many other places we've seen in Revelation, that word earth should probably be translated land. So it's the kings of the land, the land of Israel. And the kings or rulers of the land of Israel are the high priestly, the high priestly aristocracy of Israel. They're the ones who rule over the temple system. So they essentially, from Jerusalem, rule over the land. In Revelation 17, we will see that they are subject to the prostitute Babylon, Jerusalem. And our chapter here says that the kings are involved in shedding the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And this is, of course, exactly what the rulers of Israel did. They killed the prophets. They killed Jesus and they killed and persecuted the followers of Jesus. You can read all about that in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. And then finally, I'll point out that the last verse of Revelation 17 will tell us that the woman is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. So who does the woman, Jerusalem, have dominion over? Well, these kings of the earth, the high priestly aristocracy of the land of Israel, are subject to Jerusalem and the temple system that they serve. Next is the beast. We also have here in Revelation 17, a beast. Who is the beast? As we saw back in Revelation 13, the beast is the Roman empire. And at the same time, it's Nero, Caesar. So sometimes it's corporate, sometimes it's individual. Here, it's got the more corporate meaning in mind. The beast here in Revelation 17 has seven heads and ten horns, seven emperors of the Roman Empire. And it also says that the beast was and is not and is to come. So that refers to the apparent collapse of the empire, followed by its resurrection or recovery that we talked about previously. And the chapter says that the seven heads are seven mountains as well on which the woman is seated. Now remember, Rome is the Septimontium, the seven-hilled city. So if these seven are the emperors of the Roman Empire, it matches that they're also the seven hills. And then finally, we have the ten kings. So we've had seven angels. We've had the kings of the earth, now we have the 10 kings, which are the 10 horns at the same time. And the text tells us that they will receive authority from the beast or from the empire for a short time. They hand their power over to the beast and with him, they make war on the lamb. So are the 10 kings the same as the seven kings? No, and they're not the seven angels and they're not the kings of the earth either. They're different. These 10 kings are the kings or rulers of other nations that are part of the Roman Empire. They come alongside the Romans in their war against the Jews, which is also a war against the Christians. So the 10 kings are the rulers of other nations inside the Roman Empire. So that's the cast of characters that makes up the story of Revelation 17. So Before we jump into the text, let me just give you a quick summary of what's happening in this chapter. Basically, what John is doing here is he's going back and giving us a more in-depth, detailed look at the sixth and seventh bowl judgments. We already saw the bowl judgments in chapter 16, but now we get more details about the climax of this final judgment. If you remember what we saw last week, the bowl judgments are the final judgments. We're reaching the very end of the judgments. And once this judgment is done, then we get to the good part of the book of Revelation, the marriage supper of the lamb and the description of the new heavens and earth and all of that. But for now, this is still the judgments. An angel comes and shows John the judgment of the prostitute Jerusalem. And the reason is her unfaithfulness, which the angel describes as sexual immorality. We'll talk more about why it's described that way a little later. She's riding on the beast, which is the Roman Empire, and she's drunk on the blood of the saints. The angel describes the beast and his allies and explains that they make war on the lamb, which is Jesus, but the lamb will will conquer them. And then as the chapter finishes, the angel explains that the beast and the other rulers will turn and hate the prostitute, Jerusalem. They'll turn on her. They will shame her and destroy her. And that's how God's judgment is carried out on the prostitute, Jerusalem. All right, now let's read chapter 17. So just follow along as I read. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, And with the wine of whose sexual immorality, the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast you saw, was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen, one is, The other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings, who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast." They will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is Lord of lords and king of kings and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. All right, there's three things I want to point out regarding the prostitute Jerusalem as we study this text. Here they are. Jerusalem is rebellious, Jerusalem is reprobate, and Jerusalem is rejected. The prostitute Jerusalem is the focus of the chapter as God judges Jerusalem and Israel. So it's important for us to see what it is that God condemns so that we cannot follow in the footsteps of Jerusalem, but instead live as faithful people of God. We're going to focus on this prostitute. We're not going to get to all the details of the text because there's just too much this morning. Uh, You can ask questions later if you want. But let's start with these observations about her. So first of all, Jerusalem is rebellious. The fact that she's pictured as a prostitute lets us know right off the bat that she's not living in covenant faithfulness. She's not living according to God's design. She has rebelled against her God. The woman's dressed in priestly colors. She has a golden cup like what would be used for worship in the temple. But it's filled with abominations. What are abominations? Well, it's something unclean or disgusting. An abomination is something that is a violation of God's law, something that God finds disgusting. And they're rebelling against God's law and against his holiness. The beast and the 10 kings or horns are talked about here, but they're not really the focus of the chapter. So we can go back and see the list of Caesars again. Remember, we've got the five that have already gone. The one that now is, that's Nero Caesar. And the one that's going to rule for a short time, that's Galba, who's only there for seven months. And the beast is the Roman Empire. Well, in this chapter, it gets called an eighth king that belongs to the seven. That's just telling you that it's of the same kind. It's They're both talking about the Roman rule, the Roman Empire. And the ten kings are the allies who fight with the Romans. And the reason they're all explained here is so that we can see what the prostitute is doing. She's siding with them against God and his people. The prostitute Jerusalem is drunk on the blood of the saints the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. That tells us that she has rebelled against God and has sided with God's enemies. She's at war with God. She's a rebel. She's a traitor. So to summarize, the prostitute Babylon, Jerusalem, is a rebel against God. She has rebelled against God's law and she's sided with God's enemies. Second, Jerusalem is reprobate. And here's where we'll spend most of our time, because it's kind of how the passage unfolds. By that, we mean that Jerusalem is depraved, morally corrupt. This is the heart of what is being pictured by calling Jerusalem a prostitute. The angel says that Jerusalem has committed sexual immorality with the kings of the earth. Well, if the kings of the earth are the high priestly aristocracy of Israel, what is this communicating? Clearly, it's not simply literal sexual immorality. It's spiritual in nature. It's described as sexual immorality, and it's also described as being drunk with the wine of sexual immorality. And the angel strings together a series of images to help us picture this. So it's the wine of sexual immorality. The woman has a cup full of abominations and the impurities of sexual immorality. And she's drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs. So whatever was involved in shedding the blood of the saints is equated with sexual immorality. Because both are given as the cause of her drunkenness. Both are what is in the cup. So what's in view here is her persecution of the saints, her siding with the enemies of God. In other words, her unfaithfulness to God. It's spiritual apostasy, desertion, turning away from God, her husband. The imagery of the name on the forehead is something we've seen before. The saints have God's name. Those who follow the beast have his number on their forehead. Here the prostitute city Jerusalem has the name Babylon because Babylon is that great enemy of God. And the angel says that Jerusalem is the mother of prostitutes and abominations of the land. In other words, what does Jerusalem produce? She produces prostitutes and abominations. And the point is that it's shocking. This is shock language. That John is employing. He's acting in the mold of the Old Testament prophets who denounced Israel's unfaithfulness in very strong, shameful, embarrassing language. John says the golden cup is full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. The golden cup is used in worship. Remember, the woman's dressed in priestly colors. But what is in the cup? What is it that she brings to worship? What is it that she is drinking, that she is drunk on? Well, abominations and the impurities of sexual immorality. Abominations and sexual immorality and the impurity of it is discussed in Leviticus 15. You may remember because it was one of the more uncomfortable messages that we studied Leviticus together. It's all about bodily discharges. And the impurity spoken of is menstrual impurity. That's what's in the cup that she's drinking. At the end of the chapter, we see the woman is left naked and ashamed. This language, along with what went before, tells us that John has the book of Ezekiel in mind in the background here. In Ezekiel 16, God begins by telling Ezekiel, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations. So note two things here. First, it's Jerusalem that's spoken of, just like in Revelation 17. And second, God wants Ezekiel to make known the abominations. He has to detail them. He has to describe them. He has to use analogies to show them how disgusting and contemptible their actions are. And sometimes in preaching, The hearers will be uncomfortable because of the language used. And that's the point. God's strong language is for rhetorical effect. It's on purpose. So as you continue through Ezekiel chapter 16, which is what's in the background here for John, God describes when he chose Israel as a bride. He says, verse 8, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you and you became mine. So the covering with a garment is a picture of entering the marriage covenant. Maybe you can think there of um, the story of Ruth and Boaz on the threshing floor. Okay, the covering there is kind of this commitment to a marriage covenant and the threshing floor is where that happens and the threshing floor becomes then a picture of the, the sexual relationship between husband and wife because it's, it's a opening up of seed so that life can come. All of that is kind of in the background here in this description of the garment that's covering the nakedness. Well, if the, gar- if the covering with a garment is a picture of entering the marriage covenant, what happens in Revelation 17? Jerusalem is uncovered left naked and ashamed. This is the ending of the marriage covenant. This is the divorce because of Israel's unfaithfulness. Though God had made Jerusalem his wife, they were unfaithful to him. Now, in continuing through Ezekiel chapter 16, God describes Jerusalem's unfaithfulness in graphic terms. This is what's in the background now in Revelation 17. He says this, this is verse 16, you took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines and on them played the whore. The like has never been nor ever shall be. Note that Jerusalem made alternate shrines where she could prostitute herself. That tells us that worship is involved here. God's giving us a picture of their spiritual worship related adultery. God says, they took the gifts that he had given them, the temple, the glory and the beauty of being his people, and they used them for their prostitution. Back in Ezekiel, at the head of every street, you built your lofty place and made your beauty an abomination, offering yourself to any passerby and multiplying your whoring. This is one of those places where the translators have really toned things down to make it palatable to us today. Literally, the Hebrew says that they spread their legs for every passerby. They pursued new partners, chasing after God's enemies, like the Egyptians and the Philistines. But God says that even those pagan nations were ashamed of your lewd behavior. How bad do you have to behave to have the pagan nations ashamed of how lewd your behavior is? And they didn't find the satisfaction they were looking for with the Philistines and the Egyptians. So they went after the Assyrians and then the Chaldeans and they couldn't find satisfaction there. And later in the book, Ezekiel says that their behavior was like they were going after animals to find the satisfaction that they couldn't find with people. So God finally exclaims, how sick is your heart, declares the Lord God, because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute. But it's even worse than that, God says. Where a normal prostitute does what she does for payment, Jerusalem wasn't even in it for the money. In fact, she was willing to pay others for the opportunity for her sexual immorality. Yet you were not like a prostitute because you scorned payment. Adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings. So you were different from other women in your whorings. No one solicited you to play the whore, and you gave payment while no payment was given to you. Therefore, you were different. Now, what is God's response to all of this? Therefore, O prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because your lust was poured out and your nakedness uncovered in your whorings with your lovers and with all your abominable idols and because of the blood of your children that you gave to them, therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, all those you loved and all those you hated. Let me pause there for a minute. When it speaks of the blood of your children that you gave to them, remember that in their worst moments, Old Testament Israel offered their children in sacrifice to other gods. You may see a parallel to what's happening in our culture today there. But it also has the meaning that the true children of Abraham, the church, have had their blood offered up by Jerusalem through persecution. So the cup of the prostitute in Revelation 17 is filled not only with abominations and impurity, but also, John says, with the blood of the saints the true children of Abraham have been offered up as a sacrifice to these false gods by Jerusalem, the prostitute. So God continues, I will gather them against you from every side and will uncover your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness and I will judge you as women who commit adultery and shed blood are judged and bring upon you the blood of wrath and jealousy. And I will give you into their hands and they shall throw down your vaulted chamber and break down your lofty places. By the way, that's what happened. The temple was destroyed. They shall strip you of your clothes and take your beautiful jewels and leave you naked and bare. So understand what's happening here. As Ezekiel prophesies this, their lovers are now turned against them. They're the ones who are leaving them naked and ashamed. In Revelation 17, that's God using the Roman Empire and the surrounding nations who had been the ones that Jerusalem sided with. Now they turn against Jerusalem and they come for war against Jerusalem. It's exactly what God's describing here. They shall bring up a crowd against you. And they shall stone you and cut you to pieces with their swords and they shall burn your houses and execute judgments upon you in the sight of many women. I will make you stop playing the whore and you shall also give payment no more. So I will satisfy my wrath on you and my jealousy shall depart from you. I will be calm and will be no more angry because you have not remembered the days of your youth but have enraged me with all these things. Therefore, behold, I have returned your deeds upon your head, declares the Lord God. The wrath that God pours out is exactly what John is describing in Revelation 17. God's intense fury and wrath comes because of the spiritual adultery of his people. They've filled up the measure of his wrath and the final judgment falls. Now, as you hear those graphic descriptions, if your reaction is, that's disgusting, that's exactly the reaction John intends. David Chilton in his commentary on Revelation, specifically on this 17th chapter, he's showing how Ezekiel 16 is in the background. And after he describes Ezekiel's sarcastic portrayal of Israel's adultery, this is his comment here. He says, Ezekiel's prophecy was crude and he most certainly offended many of his listeners. But he was simply giving them a faithful description of how offensive they were to God. In the view of the all-holy God who spoke through Ezekiel, nothing could be more obscene than the bride's apostasy from her divine husband. What Israel has done in rejecting God is as disgusting and revolting and nauseating and offensive as the picture that John has painted of the whore who's drunk from drinking the menstrual impurity of sexual immorality and the blood of the saints. Because Jerusalem, the prostitute, is responsible for the death of the prophets and for the death of Jesus and for the death and persecution of his followers. Well, we've seen that Jerusalem is rebellious and Jerusalem is reprobate. And now third, Jerusalem is rejected. God's judgment has fallen on Jerusalem. They've been divorced. Just like the punishment for an unfaithful wife could include stoning. Last time we saw hundred pound hailstones being rained down on Jerusalem. It's as if God has sent them to stone this city that is unfaithful to him a fitting response to an adulterous city. But it's also important for us to note that Israel being divorced clears the way for a new bride, the church. And in chapter 19, we will see the marriage supper of the Lamb where Jesus takes this new bride as his own. When the angel described the prostitute, he said that on her forehead was a name of mystery. In the Bible, a mystery is something that was hidden but has now been revealed. For example, in the Old Testament, there were mysteries, there were things that were present there but couldn't be seen clearly. They hinted toward Christ, but only became clear once Christ arrived and you could look back and understand. One of the things that's often called a mystery is the church, the church itself. God's plan for the church was always there It was going to be Jew and Gentile alike as part of the people of God. But it was hidden in the Old Covenant until it became clear once Christ came. So how is Babylon the Great, the great prostitute city Jerusalem, a mystery? Well, the angel explains in verse 7, I'll tell you the mystery of the woman. His explanation tells exactly what's about to happen. And here's the point. This was God's plan all along. This was no surprise to him. He was always going to rescue a people for himself by sending Jesus to die on the cross for their sins. It's all unfolding according to plan. Even the Roman Empire and their allies are doing, the text says, exactly what God had purposed. And as far as Jerusalem is concerned, the plan is that Jerusalem would be rebellious, be reprobate, and be rejected. God would display his holy hatred of sin. And God would display his glorious grace and mercy by rescuing a people for himself, a new bride, the church. Well, you're probably glad that we're through Revelation 17 now. It's not the most fun passage. It's got hard things to say. So what use is it to us? Let me briefly just give you three ways that this passage should challenge us. Here's the first one. Be faithful. If Israel was rebellious, we should be faithful. One of the ways we saw that Israel was rebellious was that they rejected God's laws. We need to be people of God's law. God's law is our standard. Now, when I say that, what probably comes into your mind is that fact that some people reject God's law for something more permissive, something that will let them do whatever they want. That's our culture today. Our sexual ethics today are all about what I feel like, We've completely rejected any transcendent outside standard. But God's law will outlast all of our folly. But at the same time, there's a danger in another direction. And I think it's one that we're more prone to at times. Some Christians reject God's law by adding to God's law, like the Pharisees did. See, God gives us room to differ with each other according to conscience, but he tells us not to make our conscience the rule of someone else's behavior. Doing that is another way of rejecting God's law as our standard. How is that rejecting God's law? Well, we're substituting our own ideas in place of what God has actually said. Psalm 119, verses 4 through 6 says, You've commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. Now, today, we talk a lot about grace, and sometimes people think grace and law are in opposition to each other. But we would do well to listen to the words of those who've gone before us who wrote things like the Westminster Confession of Faith or the Second London Baptist Confession, 1689. That second one, it goes into explaining the uses of the law for Christians. And then it says this, neither are the aforementioned uses of the law contrary to grace, the grace of the gospel, but do sweetly comply with it. So grace and law, fit together, the confession is saying. The spirit of Christ subduing and enabling the will of man to do that freely and cheerfully, which the will of God revealed in the law requires to be done. Law and grace together. Another great statement that helps us understand this comes from the pen of John Calvin as he wrote the Geneva Confession of Faith. Because there's only one Lord and Master who has dominion over our consciences, and because his will is the only principle of all justice, we confess all our life ought to be ruled in accordance with the commandments of his holy law, in which is contained all perfection of justice, and that we ought to have no other rule of good and just living, nor invent other good works to supplement it than those which are there contained. When Israel was rebellious to God's law, they were committing spiritual adultery. Israel was rebellious. We should be faithful to God by obeying his law freely and cheerfully, following the enablement of the Spirit of Christ. So be faithful. Second, be holy. Be holy. If Israel was reprobate, we should be holy. J.C. Ryle says wrong views about holiness are generally traceable to wrong views about human corruption. If a man does not realize the dangerous nature of his soul's diseases, you cannot wonder if he's content with false or imperfect remedies. And that's why passages like Ezekiel 16 and Revelation 17 are in scripture. So that we are reminded of the severity of sin of our desperate condition apart from Christ. But we're called to holiness. I think sometimes we take grace for granted. I've been saved by grace and now I can coast. But that's not the picture the Bible writers paint. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 1. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, so your your hope is in grace, not in anything you do. And then he continues, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. It's a spiritual battle. You can see that in Revelation 17 because when Jerusalem commits immorality, she's siding with the beast. She's serving the dragon. But spiritual victory over Satan consists in what? Victory over sin. It consists in holiness. Joseph Carroll wrote, The holiness and happiness of the saints are the shame and torment of the devil and of his children. The dragon does not want to see you be holy. If Israel was rebellious, we should be faithful. If Israel was reprobate, we should be holy. And if Israel was rejected, we should be grateful. We should be grateful for our belonging to Christ. He's made us his own. Grateful for our calling. Grateful that God is our God. Our calling is completely of grace. We didn't do anything to earn it or deserve it. Richard Baxter wrote that a thankful obedience and an obedient thankfulness are a Christian's life. So that faithfulness and holiness should flow out of gratitude. And we're actually commanded to be grateful. So when we're Living as God designed, we'll be faithful and we'll be holy, but we'll also be grateful. After the author of Hebrews draws out the contrast between the old covenant that Israel had and the new covenant that we have, he writes this. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire the proper response to the grace that we've been given is the grace response of gratitude, thankfulness, worship with reverence and awe. Faithfulness, holiness, gratitude. John's description of Jerusalem and the depths of her sin and rebellion and the judgment that fell on her because of it should lead us to Christ and to faithfulness and holiness and gratitude. Would you pray with me? Lord, this is a difficult passage that we've read this morning, this passage about the great prostitute. We see Jerusalem's sin and her spiritual adultery, her apostasy turning away from you. And we recognize that every single one of us has the same sin nature. And oftentimes, we do not take sin seriously enough. So I pray that you would use this passage this morning to impress upon us the severity of sin and the judgment that it brings. And I pray that our response would be that by the Spirit, we would be faithful and we would be holy. And that as we consider what you have given to us in Christ, we would be grateful that we would be able to sing to you and to worship you in reverence and awe because you are a consuming fire and we deserve to be consumed in that fire and yet in your grace, you have shown us mercy and love and covenant faithfulness. So cause us to be faithful and holy and grateful. We pray this in Jesus' name this morning. Amen.